Hi everyone. Before I get into the message, I just wanted to say thank you to John and the other musicians who are serving us so well at this time, working really hard to pull together worship for us. And to Susie and Nancy who are doing an awesome job with our kids' work. I know loads of parents who expressed appreciation for what they're doing. I'm enjoying my little cameo roles in the acting as well as really enjoying watching what they're doing as well. So thank you to all those who are helping that, us in that way. Let me ask you a personal question. Are you a drinker? Our relationship with alcohol is complex at the best of times. The alcohol industry is huge, uh, important aspects of the economy, brings pleasure to many, but also causes, of course, a huge amount of misery. And the tensions around alcohol that we might experience are heightened at this time of lockdown. It's been interesting to see how different governments are approaching this. For example, in South Africa, the government has banned the sale of alcohol during the lock lockdown season. Uh, they've done that for the reasons that, of what alcohol can produce in terms of an increase in domestic violence, of people not observing social distancing if they're drinking, of people being more careless and prone to accidents if they've been drinking, and also the suggestion that alcohol can weaken the immune system, which obviously isn't good with a virus going around. On the other hand, the UK government uh, declared that off-licenses are an essential service and should and permitted to remain open during the time of lockdown. Rather different approaches to alcohol. Now, you might be experiencing something of that tension personally. You might be finding that having a glass of wine in the evening is helping you in terms of relaxation and just some diversion from everything that else is going on. But you also might be finding that perhaps you're a little bit dependent in a way which isn't healthy or just that regular drinking isn't healthy, full stop. Now, today's Bible story that we're looking at is a story about wine. It's a story about a lack of wine and then about an abundance of wine. Let's read together what it says. We're going to read from John chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. On the third day... A wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 80 to 120 litres. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realise where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. Now, I like wine. I like not just the product itself to drink, but I like what that product can represent. Of course, wine can just be a mass-produced commodity turned out by the big 
brewing companies, or it can be something with real meaning, something which is actually symbolically powerful. Let me give you a couple of examples. Here's a bottle of wine that I got on holiday in 2004. It's a 2003 vintage, but I got it in, on holiday in France in 2004. It's a sweet wine, a dessert wine. Uh, I bought it back then and I plan to save it until this year, 2020. It's my 50th birthday next month and I think I might open it for my 50th birthday. And not only am I looking forward to the taste of this wine, but it's also what this wine represents in terms of holidays in France, time spent with friends, uh, remembering when, when my kids were small back in 2004 when they were very small, all those kind of things. So the, the wine is actually not just about the drink, actually it's about what, the, what this represents in terms of all, all, all the surroundings of it. Here's a, another, I don't have a huge cellar, I just have a few bottles. Here's another significant bottle to me. This one is from Eagle's Nest in Constantia in South Africa. Um, I first went to this vineyard with my friend Rigby Wallace, who leads Common Ground Church in Cape Town. We went there and we sat in the vineyard and we uh, tried some wine and we talked and we learnt more of one another's stories. And then later on, I was able to go back to that vineyard with Grace and with uh, Richard and Vicky Stamp and a couple of our kids. And we had a fantastic lunch, sitting there in the sun, eating good food, talking, laughing, uh, trying wine together. So again, this bottle speaks to me about something which is so much more precious than just the liquid contents inside the glass. It speaks to me about friendship, it speaks to me about a place which is special to me, uh, Cape Town, South Africa is special to me, it speaks to about uh, uh, people that I've met who've made this, it's not just anonymous, sitting in the vineyard with people who actually produce the wine, being able to see the vines growing, there's a lot more to this wine than simply the drink itself. Now, when we ask the question, what does heaven look like? It's a little bit like that. It's a bit, for me, certainly in my imagination, and I think what the Bible describes, it's about friendship, it's about enjoyment, it's about storytelling. For me, sitting in that vineyard, eating good food, drinking a glass of wine with my friends felt pretty heavenly, and I think that's the kind of picture the Bible paints when it talks about what heaven is like. And so the Bible often uses wine in a very symbolic sense. I want us to look at some of these scriptures which help us to understand this, and help us understand what was going on at the wedding in Cana. One way the Bible speaks about wine, a picture it paints, is that wine is a picture of superabundance. Let's hear what the prophet Amos has to say about that. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the ploughman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. Another picture that the Bible uses wine to describe is that of joy and of a party. The prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah tell us about this. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. They will come and shout for joy on the heights of Zion. They will rejoice in the bounty of the Lord, the grain, the new wine and the olive oil, the young of the flocks and herds. They will be like a well-watered garden and they will sorrow no more. And a third picture 
that the Bible uses wine to help us see is that of peace and security. This is what the prophet Hosea says. People will dwell again in his shade. They will flourish like the corn. They will blossom like the vine. Israel's fame will be like the wine of Lebanon. So when we see a story about wine in the Bible, this story about Jesus turning water into wine, we need to also see the symbolism of the Bible, how the Bible uses wine to point to other things, to point to security. Wine symbolizes security because vineyards take a long time to grow. If you think you're only going to be in a place a short time, you don't plant vines. You plant something which grows much quicker, runner beans or something. You don't plant vines. Vines take a long time to grow, so it speaks about security. Wine's also, wine also speaks about joy. It's symbolic of joy that wine makes a party. In Psalm 104, it says that wine gladdens human hearts. So when the Bible talks about wine, it's often pointing towards joy. Also, wine symbolically speaks about abundance. And in a story we're looking at today, when Jesus turned water into wine, there's something which seems, to be honest, fairly magical about that. Miraculous is the word that we'd use, that there's an abundance that is produced. And God promises to supply for his people a full, not a measly measure. There's also something very earthy about wine. And the Bible would point us towards that as well. And when we think about what heaven might look like, we shouldn't have a false picture of a kind of disembodied, floating around existence. No, when the Bible describes a heavenly kind of existence, it points towards something which is very physical. It's with your friends, eating food, drinking. The Bible describes the marriage supper of the Lamb. The picture of what happens at the end of the age is like that in those very earthy terms. And uh, you think about a vine. Vines tend to grow best in rocky soil. They get their roots down incredibly deep. And when the Bible speaks about vineyards and wine, often it's pointing to the way that God's people are going to be firmly established. So that's the kind of context in which we need to read the story of what Jesus is doing at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. Jesus isn't simply helping somebody out of an embarrassing situation. What's happening is a sign that points to the fact that Jesus himself is the answer to all our heart's longings. All those Old Testament hopes and promises about security and joy and abundance and earthiness, all those things are things which are now being realized in the person of Jesus Christ. St. Augustine, I often quote the great church teacher from the uh, fifth century, said this, read all the prophetic books, and if Christ is not understood therein, what can you find so insipid and silly? Understand Christ in them, however, and what you read not only has taste, but even inebriates you. What Augustine is saying there, that if you don't see who Christ is, you can read the prophecies of Hosea and Jeremiah and Isaiah and the rest, and they just seem silly. But when you see them pointing towards Christ, there's something there which will satisfy you. There's something there to drink deep of. Now, let's dig a little bit deeper into the story of Jesus at Cana. First thing to notice is that it happens on the third day. In John's Gospel, the first two days are spent with Jesus calling his disciples and then on the third day Jesus and his disciples go 
to a wedding. It's the start of this gospel story, but it points to where the story is headed, because in saying on the third day, John is very clearly wanting to point us to and remind us of the third day, the third day, the day on which Christ was raised from the rectory from the dead. Resurrection day is the true new wine day. It's a day when insecurity and sorrow and loss are swept away. Resurrection day is wedding day, it's party day. It's a day which makes it possible for us to be married to God. We need to see that. We also need to see how this story has really very practical application for us. On one hand, what the story describes is a small domestic incident. They're running out of wine at a wedding. And there, of course, as we know, in that culture would have been potential for a real lasting embarrassment for this couple. They would have perhaps been known for this social embarrassment for the rest of their lives. They would have been known, perhaps jokingly, behind their backs as Mr. and Mrs. Unprepared, Mr. and Mrs. Falls Short, Mr. and Mrs. Underdelivered. There would have been that kind of social embarrassment and shame for them in the wine running out at their wedding. And the story tells us that to preempt such embarrassment, Mary, the mother of Jesus, comes to the rescue. She knows that Jesus can fix the problem. In a crisis, what do you do? What Mary says we should do is do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. Sometimes doing what Jesus tells us isn't that difficult. On this occasion, Jesus said that they should fill up some jars with water. That's not too difficult. It was a job that servants were there for. And sometimes the things that Jesus asked us to do are not too difficult. But sometimes the things that Jesus asks us to do can, to be honest, be pretty agonizing. There can be a real denying of our own desires, wishes, in order to follow the command of Jesus, in order to be obedient to him. Sometimes it can be costly to follow Christ. But whatever he tells us to do, we should do it. It's always the first thing. It's always the right thing to do what Christ tells us to do. We should also see how this, the first miracle that Jesus performed, fixes a marriage problem. The marriage hadn't even begun and already it was in trouble because the wine was running out. And if you are married, then this story might help you, especially at this time. This is a time when relationships generally and marriages in particular are coming under real pressure. We've, I'm sure, all seen the reports about how there's been a big increase in domestic violence. It's one of the factors the government are trying to work out as they work out how long to keep lockdown in place, the, the pressures on, on relationships and some of the negative impacts of that. Now, if you are married and you're experiencing pressure in your marriage at this time because of the pressures of lockdown, what do you do? You do whatever he tells you. And that might be costly. It might be finding some humility that is hard for you to find. It might be asking for forgiveness which is difficult to do. It might be uh, repenting yourself of things that you have done. It might be offering forgiveness to your partner. Those things can be difficult, they can be costly, but they are the right thing to do. Let's do it. There's also something to learn in this story about how we should approach 
God. Because when Mary starts to turn to Jesus for help, his initial response to her is not very promising. Woman, why do you involve me? Sounds pretty harsh. Got nothing to do with me, not my problem. Why are you asking me? Seems to be the response that Jesus makes. Now, I wonder if you ever feel that God is giving you that kind of response when you pray. I know myself, sometimes prayer can feel like that. It can feel like God is saying, why are you asking me? Why are you involving me? Martin Luther, the church reformer, said this about the story. The highest thought in this gospel lesson, and it must ever be kept in mind, is that we honour God as being good and gracious, even if he acts and speaks otherwise, and all our understanding and feeling being otherwise. You know, God is good and gracious, even when we're not feeling that. And the thing about this story is that Mary doesn't allow Jesus' initial response to put her off. Luther goes on to say, she is certain that he will be gracious, although she does not feel it. The thing was that Mary knew Jesus. She knew how he would respond, even though at first he didn't seem to be responding as she hoped he would. We need to know God. When we know him as good and gracious, that will shape our prayers. It means that we'll keep coming to him. It means that we'll keep asking. It means that we'll keep doing whatever he tells us, however things are feeling. Now, let's get back to the wine. And there was an awful lot of it. The story tells us there were six jars, and each of those jars held between 80 and 120 litres of water. Let's, in round terms, say it's 100 litres each, so that's 600 litres of water poured into the jars, which is transformed into wine, and 600 litres is 800 standard bottles of wine. That is more wine than any party could possibly need. Added to that, what we see in verse 10, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink or literally after the guests have got drunk. What we see is that the guests already seem to have had a bit of a skinful. One commentator I read said about this, the story seems to take inebriation rather casually. And that might raise all kinds of questions for us. But the point is, the point we need to see is about super abundance of the best there is. There's a lack, there's an absence, there's a running out, and out of nothing, out of water, Jesus makes hundreds and hundreds of bottles of the very best wine. It's a story about super abundance. And that takes me back to my memories of sitting in a vineyard at Eagle's Nest with my friends, enjoying a bottle of wine and good food and telling stories and sharing our hearts and enjoying life to its fullest. And it takes me back to those Old Testament prophecies those prophecies of joy and security, 
of peace. We need to see the impact of this miracle. We can read this story as if Jesus is simply helping out some newlyweds who've got into trouble right at the beginning of their wedding and whose lives are going to be marred by this and shamed by this forevermore if something doesn't happen. We can read it simply at that level and there is practical application for us at that level as I've shown, but it's about so much more than that. Remember again what Augustine said, read all the prophetic books and if Christ is not understood therein, what can you find so insipid and silly? Understand Christ in them, however, and what you read not only has taste, but even inebriates you. That's the point of the story. The wine isn't about the wine. The wine is about Jesus, the true and better wine. Let's read the last verse of this, of this story, John 2, verse 11. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. The verse says that it was through this sign that Jesus revealed his glory. It was a sign pointing to the fact that he was fulfilling all those Old Testament promises and prophecies. In turning all that water into wine, he was pointing to the fact that he was the true and better wine. And this sign, it says, caused his disciples to believe in him. Uh, literally, what it says there is that his disciples believed into him. His disciples believed into him. It's not an expression that we use in English, but that's how in the original language it's written. And it's a phrase that John uses repeatedly through his gospel, that people believe into Jesus. We might perhaps in our language speak more in terms of they entrusted themselves to him. They believed into him. They entrusted themselves to him. This is a question for us today. Will we entrust ourselves to Jesus? Will we believe the promises that were about him and which he claims to have fulfilled? Will we anticipate the wine that Jesus has prepared for us? You know, I'm looking forward to the end of a lockdown. I look at these bottles of wine, I look at this bottle from France and think and dream about French holidays and sitting in long, hot evenings with friends, drinking a glass of wine, telling stories, laughing, joking together. We can dream about those kind of things, but what Jesus says he has for us, what Jesus offers us, is better even than the end of lockdown, even better than a holiday in France, even better than a holiday in Cape Town. What he promises us is himself the true and better wine. He is the one who is able to bring us into peace, into joy, into security, and into abundance. And so we should drink this wine in its full measure. He is the true and better wine. Let's pray together. Jesus, you who turned water into wine, I turn towards you today. Where I feel lack, may I drink of your abundance. 
where I feel insecure, may I drink of your security. Where I feel restless, may I drink of your peace. Where I feel downcast, may I drink of your joy. Thank you, this is Resurrection Day. You are the true and better wine. Help me keep entrusting myself to you and doing whatever you tell me to do. Amen.